WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont. Uh, beautiful Monday morning out there, a little cool, but uh, the sun was shining driving uh, here from St. Albans, and it was really uh, a pleasant drive, and happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day to everyone. Uh, maybe you have the day off and getting to relax. I remember reading years ago about uh, Henry David Thoreau in over in Walden uh, was writing about civil disobedience and passive resistance, and that uh, writing influenced uh, Gandhi in India remarkably, and that uh, Gandhi influenced Martin Luther King on uh, passive resistance and civil disobedience. So there was just this gigantic global connection uh, from a little pond in New Hampshire and a, and a writer there and affected uh, a lot of things in the world. So it means that you can do things uh, from wherever you are to, to help. And that uh, segues me perfectly into my first two guests Uh Laura Ullman is a, a WCAX reporter who has uh, recently finished a series called Obstacles to Opioid Use Recovery. And with me also is Melinda White, who is uh, someone who has worked um, heroically on uh, substance use addiction and uh, trying to find uh, better better pathways. So I want to welcome you both to the show. Good morning to you. Good morning, Good morning Brad. <laughs> yeah, it's a choir. We we sing in Monday mornings. Uh, so, Laura, I want to start with you. You've just you completed um, a very intensive uh, three part series on WCAX uh, about uh, opioid obstacles to op- opioid use recovery. Now I'm going to stumble on that word every time. Uh, <laughs> What what was the genesis of, of that for you and and uh, and how you got going on that? You were. Oh. I, uh, went the, <laughs> I went to the opiate summit addiction or the opiate addiction summit, and I met you, and um, you spoke well. And Melinda too, you organized such a wonderful event, and I learned so much. And both of you guided me. Through this, and I've of course always cared about substance use disorder. It's touched my life and my family's life, and um, that was more the genesis. I just wanted to learn and understand more, and you guided me. So you you started a journey, um, which was, I mean, not not from ground zero for you. You had some understanding of the topic, but what happened? As you started researching, did it just, did one door keep opening another? Yes. Um, and I always had more questions after every interview. And I still have more questions after the whole series done. Um, but I think recovery residences and just the lack of housing availability within them was really sort of the question I kept asking. But why? Because we have this major problem that seems to have a solution that works for some, why not keep opening up beds? And and was there a conclusion to the why? Um, 
I think that some answers pointed to zoning and that some folks didn't want recovery residences in their neighborhoods. And I think there's also a lack of funding. Um, but I think there's still wise to see and um, I'm looking forward to finding out. Do you, do you do you have an idea, Melinda? Yeah, actually, you know, it's interesting because when I think about, um, you know, one thing I'll just do is clarify the difference between residential treatment, which is your Valley Vista Serenity House, versus a recovery residence, which is the step-down model that people would leave those treatment centers and go to a recovery residence to be able to live and have more more freedom, but still have a level of structure and support. And if I had to sum up the reason why, I think you kind of nailed it, Laura, that funding is a big one, right? We're seeing a lack of funding necessary. As it was mentioned by Chad Bijay in your interview with him, They Medicaid covers 14 days of a stay, which means the residential treatment location has to absorb anything additional and we we know that many people request more than just the 14 days so that's an issue with the treatment centers and then with the recovery residences it's a similar idea that there's a lack of funding and support to be able to open more of those residences as well as the zoning challenges that come up another thing that um, weighs kind of heavy on the treatment recovery community is staffing and again I think to a degree, some of that comes to funding because if we're able to amply pay staff to have mo- motivation to stay in the field, not only because they have passion behind it, but they can also pay their bills, that would help with staff retention. And we saw a big change in staffing levels, as, as Chad again had mentioned in his interview with you, that there's a huge reduction to service providers out there right now. So uh, thank you for that, Melinda. Uh, Laura, you had an interview with somebody who, um, with a mom who had a son who was struggling and it was really heart wrenching and also heartwarming to, to listen and see the mom talk about never giving up. And, and it really became a big part of your story. Can you tell us more about that, your discussions with the mom and, and how your impression of that? I was very moved that day. Um, Delinda's honesty and kindness to me and just willing to open up how it really touched her really moved me because what I kept learning over and over again is that recovery is so hard. It's so hard and so many people really struggle through it. And I think when you have somebody who supports you in your life and never gives up on you, that's probably the best chance you're going to get. And Delinda is an amazing, amazing mom to Josh. And um, I think I have learned from her personally just to persevere through when, when things are really challenging. If you have somebody in your corner who really believes in you, then you can – you can get through the hardest parts in your life. So I learned that there are definitely some people who don't have support, and I think things make them harder, but that's when people like Melinda come in and um, people who are working within recovery. And um, Melinda was the one who introduced me to Celinda. 
So again, thank you so much, Melinda. Um, this would not have been possible without you. I, I'm so grateful that I met you. You you have been such a blessing to everybody who's met you. Oh gosh, I wish I could just hug you right now, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could hug you too. Well, um, Melinda White, you often are described as having a cape, you know, flying out of telephone booths if we had any nowadays. Uh, uh, so, M- Melinda, can you talk a little bit more about um, sort of the isolation part of when you're dealing when you either when you're in substance abuse yourself or you're dealing with a family member? There is some tendency to to guard it as a secret and and feel like you're the only one in the world. But can you talk about that? I can, Brad. Yeah, it's interesting because the disease of the of addiction is the only disease that will convince us that we don't have a disease. It's a disease of the brain. And when a person struggling with substance use, which very familiar to me in my days of use, I felt completely alone and isolated, terminally unique. Um, I could be in a room full of people that could express their love to me and not even hear any of that because all I could think about was those deep, dark secrets of that, you know, that it's almost leading that double life and just the guilt growing as bad decisions are made to continue getting the fix I needed to appear normal. And then on the flip side, for the family members, they also, you know, and I'll say in my own family, it was baffling because we didn't have anybody who had addiction to the degree that I did or had, a, you know, a, a legal record to the degree that I did. So it was foreign to my family. And there were so many questions and so few answers until the appropriate connections were made. And that's connecting to peers for people seeking recovery, connecting to other people who had gone through the same things and knew the way out. And then for the family members, connecting with other family members who had gone through it with their loved ones and learned kind of some of the do's and don'ts. And there's a lot of gray area in both because all people are different. And that's why we celebrate so many different paths to recovery. That's why, you know, it can't be put in a box with the solution is because people are different. Their trauma history may be different, their lifestyles, their upbringing, but, but a person shifts from, isolation and loneliness into a place of hope and solution when they're able to connect with others who have gone through similar circumstances and can shed at least a little bit of light on what you could possibly expect and what some of the solutions are. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Uh, We are talking with Laura Allman, who's a WCAX reporter, and uh, Laura just uh, completed a series um, about uh, obstacles uh, to opioid use recovery. And um, I'm noting, Laura, you came to WCX in January of 2023, which is um, congratulations if we were near or on an anniversary date of one year, which is great. Um, but I'm struck by something this was a long research story, and when we think about, um, you know, journalism in newspapers, radio, and TV, often it's the events of the day. But you, uh, this was not an event of the day story. You didn't research it um, in the morning and broadcast in at the six o'clock news. Can you t- talk about that process and how how is this different and 
allowed, sort of not allowed, but the station let you do this. WCAX is special because our editors and our news director and our assistant news director and assignment manager do let us do investigative pieces when they feel like it strikes a chord. I am allowed, I guess I would say, special privileges because I produce the weekend mornings. Um, so I work that 2 to 3 to 10 a.m. shift Saturday, Sunday, and report Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I'm allowed to do pieces that take a little longer, which I'm grateful for, although those Saturday, Sunday morning shifts is tough. Um, so I started that piece in September, and it didn't air till this mid-December, which some of my sources kept asking me, when's it going to air? And I kept feeling terrible, but I'm glad we strung it out because I feel like I was able to, or you can tell me if I was able to capture the whole picture. Well, I think it was a remarkable series, and Melinda, you can weigh in on that as well. The it was it's a difficult topic and it gets back to what melinda was saying you know there there's shame around this and and therefore it creates kind of the problem of getting help sometimes even reaching out uh but but you really the length of time you you took to research it was was well worth worth it and how can people see this now after after it's aired so I was just sort of rewatching a little bit this morning. I just looked on Google opiate recovery WCAX and it other than the SAMHSA help national helpline, it was the first three that popped up. Okay. Links. Perfect. Melinda, were you surprised by anything in Laura's reporting or, or was it everything you knew but she was substantiating it? I have to say the latter, Brad, that There wasn't any new information I learned by watching the series, but as I watched it, I was blown away with Laura's professionalism, her compassion, even in my own, you know, part of that series on the second part. With the time that I spent with Laura, she has a genuine curiosity, interest, and compassion in this area. And I think that's key to not only you know, have an interesting series for people to watch, but to see that she took her time and thoughtfully interviewed the appropriate people, did the appropriate research so she could share as accurate of information as possible. And I think she did that. You know, she did a beautiful job of encompassing the, you know, the the first stage, so to speak, of a person's journey that they may be going to a detox and residential treatment she interviewed uh, Valley Vista and Serenity House on that piece. And then she also did interviews, both asking me uh, with the work that I do and then the researcher in UVM about the MAT, which is medication-assisted treatment piece of treatment, and Hub and Spoke. And then she also covered the recovery residences, which is kind of, you know, that's the rest of the story. We hear people go away to treatment, and then they come back, and there's a lot of questions about how can you go away, come back, and it's all over? And it's not all over. We know that recovery is a lifetime lifestyle commitment. It's not an event. It's a journey. And she did a great job of highlighting that and then also highlighting the need for stronger bridges from all areas of service. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Laura, it was, it was really very, so very thorough. Um, and, 
not over yet. I mean, this is a story that, that will have legs for a long time. And notably, um, people, we're losing people in Vermont, um, on a daily basis to substance use addiction. Um, so Laura, with, with the story, what, what is next, um, in, in terms of reporting? Does this generate a whole new, uh, segment on um, additional topics on uh, substance use addiction? So this piece opened the door for me to be passed on the health beat. So I've been sort of looking at health in Vermont and the region, New Hampshire and um, New York, and trying to understand this really complicated system. Specifically, when it comes to um, substance use disorder and recovery, I'm actually working on a story um, about contingency management, which I don't know when it will air, but I have my first interview on Wednesday. Um, I think one thing that I wish I did more in this story was talk about alcoholism and talk about stimulant use, and um, I regret not shedding any light because they do touch so many of us as well. Um, So hopefully I'll get to do more about those two topics specifically in the next coming months. And it's definitely on my radar. Yes. uh, Melinda, uh, Laura brings up a good point. I think that we hear a lot about, you know, heroin use and, and uh, oxys and, and all this stuff that get, gets abused and of course the the things that are being put into it uh are are horrific and and killing people but alcohol uh where does that fit into sort of the 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 problem here uh in terms of is there a ratio that we're aware of of uh which is worse or well, so I appreciate, this is another reason why I'm a big Laura Allman fan. So I appreciate that this perspective is being focused on next because the reality is oftentimes we hear about the opiate crisis, opioid, opioid, because so many overdose deaths, there was a, such an increase that it put a big eye on the opioid crisis. And then in response to that, there was a good amount of funding that came our way to respond to it. And yet, you know, I say similar to like when COVID happened, all of a sudden the focus was on COVID and we were losing sight of the fact that people were overdosing and dying at the same rate as COVID's death. So I think what ends up happening is that the world shifts and focuses on what's the new buzz subject today. But then we forget about the other underlying issues that may not be improving. And if anything, they may be getting worse. And during COVID, alcohol use went up. Um, And also stimulant use. The more that we have had residential or sorry, not residential spoke and hub uh, resources here to treat opioid use disorder, we're seeing a massive increase in stimulant use, which is, you know, cocaine, crack, methamphetamine. We're seeing a massive increase because people are able to remain off opioids using their suboxone, methadone or whatever medication they've used. But then they're still getting high off stimulants. So there's been an increase in stimulant use. There's been a constant um, slow increase in alcohol use. I can't say I've seen the trend slow down for a very long time. So I appreciate that Laura is focused on keeping a well-rounded view and not only highlighting what the focus is for funding or politics, but the reality of what's going on. 
Um, I see people in the emergency department on a regular basis as a recovery coach supervisor in the ED. In the volume of people that I'm seeing, alcohol is as much, if not more, as opioids. So I appreciate hearing Laura talk about wanting to touch on those. Contingency management, which is also known as incentivizing people with stimulant use disorder, that happens to be the only proven evidence-based treatment mechanism for people with stimulant use disorder. So these are all things that will be helpful for the general public to hear about and learn about because, again, addiction is very complicated, which means the solution can be uh, it, it can include it can be complicated in the sense that somebody might be addicted to more than one thing, which is often the case. Yeah, so cross addiction, so that they're drinking and they're taking drugs same time. Uh, so we're talking with Melinda White and uh, Laura Allman. Laura is a WCAX reporter. She just finished a uh, very thorough three-part series, Obstacles to Opioid Use Recovery. Uh, Melinda, we'll talk a little bit more about your background and, and projects as well, and I want to um, give listeners uh, an idea about what spoken hub is. It's a it's a term, but I don't know if it's got been defined here this morning. And also, I want to get into the emergency room uh, stuff that that you deal with each day, and sort of why that's uh, having someone like you as a recovery coach in the emergency rooms is so important. And and we're also seeing that with recovery coaches or people of sort of that skill set helping law enforcement. All of these are important uh, in the overall picture of recovery. Um, Melinda, you spoke of Spoken Hub, and, I mean, it sounds like a bicycle thing, uh, but w- what is it? Yeah, so, Brad, the, uh, the Hub and Spoke model was uh, created in Vermont by Dr. John Brooklyn. Essentially, a hub is a what can be defined as a higher level of care where a person who is entering outpatient opioid treatment could go daily to get their dose of whether it be methadone, suboxone, uh, administered daily. So a person goes to the hub and gets the actual medication, and then they're able to get stabilized on the appropriate dose. Once they're stabilized to a point, they can go on week giving weekly scripts as opposed to having to present to the hub daily for their medication. And then a spoke level of care is basically that when a person is stabilized to a point that they can go and get a prescription, whether it's for a week, for two weeks, sometimes eventually when somebody's in what they consider a maintenance phase, they get a monthly script of their medication to treat opioid use disorder. So that's what the hub and spoke model is. Um, Spokes can be primary care locations, some primary care, actually many primary cares are now uh, prescribing buprenorphine, which is great. Um, but the one kind of rule of thumb is that if somebody is pursuing methadone for their opioid use disorder, it can only be obtained at a hub, not at a spoke. Uh-huh. And so, Laura, on your story, uh, it was three-part and uh, it was aired, you know, each segment was pretty long for, for a TV newscast. What happens after the fact? Do you, do you get uh, feedback from viewers uh, in, in, in the market area who see it? Or does the station, station uh, manager, or when you're out having coffee and people recognize you, uh, what is the feedback like? 
I did get some great emails. Um, and of course, the staff at WCX was very supportive of me afterwards. Um, I actually had one woman who grew up in the recovery house in Rutland before it was turned into a recovery house. And I think her parents were doctors and she reached out to me and she was so glad that her childhood home had turned into um, a recovery residence and that people were, you know, getting great use out of it. And I had some people who felt like they, um, the part that Melinda, that you were in, that it almost made medicine for opioid use disorder look um, like it didn't work. And I hope that I didn't um, portray that because it has worked for so many people. But I did want to show the nuance there. And so that was something that stuck out to me. And I actually had somebody who um, is in recovery, who now is a counselor. And I think I'm going to reach out with him to do a story about his journey and sort of what it's like to be a counselor now that he's in this portion of his recovery. So I I got a lot of very interesting emails and some kind feedback and some criticism, and I appreciate all of it. Well, it's... um it shows the world is out there, right? And, uh, <laughs> so it's always good. And I think that, you know, this does seem like, uh, a, a strong beginning to something that you'll be able to do over the years, uh, come forward and, and certainly something that needs attention. Um, Melinda, what about that? The people who are in successful recovery, for lack of better words, um, we know, both in workforce development, but also in what uh, Laura was just sharing, sort of becoming part of the the solution, uh, counseling. Uh, t- can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely, Brad. I mean, when we look at like the recovery coaching profession, most of those coaches are people who are in recovery and want to work in the field. Therefore they take those positions. And then there's also a volume of people that have decided to be licensed drug and alcohol abuse counselors. Um, that, so there's a number of people in recovery that work in the field. Cause the reality is once a person finds their own pathway um, and they're able to enter recovery. And I mean, and I'll say this for myself too. There's nothing more that I want than to be part of the solution for a disease that had, that had almost killed me and has killed many people I care about. So there's that piece. I just want to back up a little bit to what Laura had said about the piece of her story with me and talking about the abstinence based journey. And I do appreciate that she was sharing all pathways. And I think that's something that maybe some people didn't see or perceived, but there was the pathway of medication that was highlighted and also the pathway of abstinence. And I appreciate that both are shown because I think what happens sometimes is that there's so much coverage on medication. And I think this is what Laura was trying to get to the bottom of is that sometimes there's so much focus on the medication that people think that's a silver bullet. And yet if overdoses are increasing, why is that if people are on medication? So it's a good reminder that the medication is not the treatment. It's a piece of the treatment. And that if somebody is on medication, many people have had their life saved being on it. And also medication is not required to recover. So that's what I saw with her coverage was just to once again highlight the complexities that every person is different. Therefore, what works for one person may not work for the next. And that's why it's important to highlight all of those pathways. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that piece because I think Laura did a great job. And I and I just wanted to say that with my feeling of it, and, and I hope I didn't come off as 
you know, when she interviewed me, making it sound like people have to go abstinence-based because that's absolutely not it. And I clearly remember saying this was my path, but that doesn't mean it's for everyone. And I've seen medication save lives, and I've also seen it destroy lives. So it's depending on the person. It's all person-centered. Um, and, yes, I think that people who are in recovery working in the field, in my experience, are some of the most effective workers because they understand. So, Melinda, on that, if if somebody in the listening audience is struggling with alcohol or or drug addiction and or a family member, they you know, you know of somebody in your family or, or a close friend, whatever it is, and there's some indication that, that the person wants help, what's your what is the first step that you, you can suggest or steps? Are there is there really a like an immediate way to reach out to when you're desperate to get help? Well, I mean, there's one thing. If we're looking at alcohol, there's an AA hotline, Alcoholics Anonymous hotline. That's a fantastic tool because it's 24-7. And similar to Narcotics Anonymous, there's a hotline with that group. But when I look at the state of Vermont, and I know I'm, I'm kind of biased towards the recovery centers because the recovery center it saved my life and I work for one. And when I say recovery centers, I just want to differentiate a recovery center in the state of Vermont is what's known as our turning point centers. So they don't have beds. They don't have overnight um, staff. They're, they're a resource center. The recovery centers in the state of Vermont, there's 12 of them and they're recovery resource centers. I tend to encourage people to go to their local recovery center, whether they're family members or people struggling because those recovery centers are equipped with all of the resources. So if a person is looking for detox, they've got the list of detoxes. If they're looking for a recovery residence, they've got that. They've got coaches, local primary care physicians, local hub and spoke. So I really encourage people who are looking for help, answers, and guidance to contact and go to their local recovery centers because that's where there's a slew of treatment and recovery resources, as well as peers who have been in that position and can help explain what it was like. And so uh, just to add into that, Melinda, there, there are some dangers in detoxing as well. Could, um, before we go to the break, can you just quickly um, sort of guide people on that? Yeah. So, you know, the reality when we look at medically, and again, every person's different depending on their underlying medical issues. But in general, if a person is addicted to alcohol, a daily user, a daily drinker, and they try to quit cold turkey, they can die. The same is with benzodiazepines, which are your family of clonopin, lorazepam, Valium. So those two substances are substances that if a person is addicted and tries to detox cold turkey or too quickly, they could die. Whereas a detox off of heroin or opioids or stimulants, you know, you could definitely feel like you're dying. I thought I was dying a few times during different detoxes, but the reality is you're not going to. So medical detox is critical, especially for people that have a dependency on alcohol and benzodiazepines. Um, they need to be medically monitored to make sure that they don't have seizures, heart attacks. Um, there's just a lot of dangerous side effects that come with stopping cold turkey. So that's why detox is really critical. People need to be monitored to make sure that they're safely reducing at a rate that their body can handle. Well, thank you for that. Uh, we are talking with Laura Ullman, WCX reporter, and Melinda White, who has been long-term uh, advocate for recovery in uh, state of Vermont. 
Uh, Laura, I want to go back to you. This three-part series, as you talked earlier um, in the show, Obstacles to Opioid Use Recovery, uh, was, was really so uh, thorough. Was there something in the story that, that when it, all three parts aired, you just smiled and said, wow, this, that, that was so important. Uh, this, this one part really stuck out to you. Well, I remember when it all finished, I thought I was actually kind of sad because I didn't want it to end. Um, because the journey of reporting on it, one of the, it was one of the most impactful and meaningful experiences I've ever had. Um, I really loved all three parts and all of my sources were so amazing and especially working with Melinda and establishing a relationship with her um, and just as a sort of mentor and a source um, really, really made me smile. But um, really, Celinda and Josh and their honesty and the way they were so forthcoming and willing to share their journey, um, that really made me smile and made me excited and um, definitely made me proud to be a journalist, to be able to amplify their voices. It's interesting. Um, I I could relate and sort of feel the power of the interview, uh, Laura, when, when, when I was watching it. And I thought about, I had done a, uh, a video up at Jenna's Promise where they do remarkable work. In fact, uh, they'll be on with me at 1030 this morning as well. And I was interviewing uh, women who had, were in recovery from opioid addiction and there were probably five or six or seven of us in the room and I was interviewing and, and the women were telling their stories and, uh, they were crying and people in the room watching were crying and I was trying to conduct the interview without crying. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm guessing the same for you, right? It, it becomes so emotional. Yes. Um, I, I, there were, I lost, um, somebody close to me to, um, cirrhosis this past year. And when we were talking about alcoholism with Melinda, I think that I did let a few tears go. Um, but you can't, you have to maintain composure and, um, it's challenging when you're hearing such impactful and meaningful stories because stories are what hold us together. And, um, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good story. Yeah. And we have a, we have a saying at the Blue Moon Farm, which is our farm. Uh, if you're crying on the inside, you should cry on the outside. It's, uh, we don't, holding these things in is just dangerous. Uh, so Melinda, I want to go back to you. You, you've been working in the emergency rooms and, and, and that model is becoming more um, prevalent, maybe. I don't know the, the right word for that, but can you talk a little bit about the success of that? Why why would a recovery coach be at the emergency room? Absolutely, Brad. You know, I think about with this three-part series, uh, Josh and CJ's story, and CJ, that's Celinda, the mom. She goes by CJ. Um, and, you know, they came to mind. It was interesting. I met them in October, and then shortly after, Laura was looking for somebody who had recently gone through treatment. 
And I, I'm grateful that when I watched their story, I, I cried my face off and didn't have to try to, you know, hold my composure because listening to CJ reminded me of the things that my mother had said. And I ran across the street because, as you know, my mom lives across the street and had her watch that episode, too. And she was also in tears. Um, and that story is one of so many happening across the state of Vermont as a result of the recovery coach in the emergency department program that happens from the turning point recovery centers that have recovery coaches embedded within within their local emergency departments. And what that looks like, and I'll just speak for my my experience, that if I am page contacted to go to the hospital or sometimes I may already be there, and somebody comes in because they have overdosed or they have lesions on their body due to xylazine or they are struggling with cirrhosis or they're struggling with having fallen. The chief complaint could be a sprained ankle, but the underlying reason could be alcohol use. So a coach is contacted and dispatched to sit and talk to the patient and oftentimes the family is part of that conversation and look at what some options are, what the person might be willing and ready to do. Um, and in some cases, you know, I do want to give a shout out to Kevin Hamill at Valley Vista because in Josh's case, you know, having called Kevin personally, you know, doing a phone a friend, and that's something I try to avoid when I meet people that are leaders in their um, the services provided, unless it's an emergency. And I mean, it was less than 24 hour turnaround time to get help with that bed. So I just want to give a shout out. And that's essentially the recovery coaching program. It's getting a coach dispatch to offer the support needed because once the person no longer has a medical emergency to stay in the emergency department, what do they do? And that's where we come in. Yeah. What a, what a great um, resource. I want to go to the phone lines. Uh, we have Michelle from Plainfield. Uh, good morning, Michelle, and welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Hi. This, hello. Thank you. Um, this is a great, uh, a great show. I am a retired, among other things, I'm a retired drug and alcohol uh, counselor, LADC. Uh, I was never addicted myself, but I got into the field because I got, I helped one young woman get sober, and it was in the early part of my career, and it was so thrilling and gratifying, and she did so well after she got sober that I said, whoa, I want to do more of this. So <laughs> I just wanted to say that also, that it's very gratifying when you help someone get sober or clean and they stay sober. Uh, it's just a great feeling. So. Uh, people used to say to me when I'd give presentations, oh, I'm so glad you do this work, as if, you know, oh, it's so such horrible work to do. But it's actually very, very rewarding work to do. So well, yeah, that's well, my, my addition. Well, it's a great addition, and uh, thank you, Michelle, for that. Uh, we appreciate what you did for lots of people. It, it is uh, – addiction um, is really about life and death in, in so many cases, so uh, – and, and Melinda, can you talk, we're, we've got about two minutes left, but it is about sharing, right? Not keeping secrets. It's getting in recovery that I'm only as sick as my secrets. So it's about having that safe person that you can get everything out to, to first just name it, claim it, and dump it and move forward and also get guidance. And I love what Michelle said, because the work is extremely rewarding. I don't believe people would be so passionate if it wasn't. 
And I'm so grateful for that. And I think that the part of it that is hard when people say, I don't know how you can do this work, is because we lose so many people. And no matter how much we're supposed to refrain from emotionally connecting too much to people we care for, if you're a human, you're going to care and have compassion. So it's hard to see people suffer and hurt. But the beauty of it is knowing that many others have suffered and hurt to that same degree. And they're now in recovery and being a force for good. So it's just a beautiful opportunity for people to have a safe space, to get stuff out, to realize that when they're bringing out those deep, dark secrets, that they're not unique. If there's a name for it, somebody else out there has done it, which means you're not alone and you can get through it. That's uh, great, great uh, advice, Melinda, um, which means, you know, if, if you're struggling, reach out. There is help out there. Laura, I want to, um, we don't have much time, but you, you had mentioned in your story about a, a tri-state model, which we advocated strongly at the uh, Substance Use Addiction Summit. Um, did you get feedback or, or you, you see that that's a viable pathway? I didn't specifically get feedback on it, but the idea of it being a viable path- pathway, and I think we spoke about this at the summit would take a lot of work and dedication from a lot of different people. So um, I'm interested to see if it is and if it could happen because those recovery residences, they're the ones who don't have space. So if we could be a tri-state model, I think that'd be great. And I think that some people who are in um, inpatient recovery at Valley Vista or Serenity House have been able to get beds in Maine afterwards. At least I know that was the case for Josh. So it might already be happening. Yeah, so I want to thank both you, uh, Laura Allman, Melinda White. This is Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. Thanks for being with me this morning. 